Hey everyone, this is Kim C, and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King, a literary book podcast of the underrated King works you never knew you needed. Welcome everyone to our third novella collection of this year. On this episode, we're going to be exploring the 1982 precious and priceless diamond, Different Seasons. So for those of you who have been listening to the pod thus far, I'm really smitten kitten for the four novella collections. (laughs) I just really enjoy what King does with those volumes and theme and arrangement, juxtaposition, all the things. And this year we've explored Full Dark No Stars, my very first King experience and one of my all-time favorites, and the latest and greatest If It Bleeds. And I decided to keep with the momentum and pursue a collection I've been dying to read for a long time. And this time, contrary to our usual programming, this novella collection is a bit different because, dear listeners, I actually haven't finished reading it. No gasp and for shame, my head is drooped down. But hear me out. So, what I'm doing with this episode is working backwards. So, if you jump back to my coverage on Full Dark No Stars and If It Bleeds, what I did on those episodes was introduce the collection as a whole, talk about the four stories in an overall impression and impact kind of way. I rave about their beauty and greatness and superiority, and then I dive in with the first two stories. This time, I decided to work backwards for two reasons. Number one, it's always good to switch things up and see what shakes loose, see if I like it better. And number two, (laughs) in complete transparency with all of you dear people, my time is a little tight these days as I'm a teacher and my fiction class is in full swing and my students need and deserve my full attention and their fiction stories are coming up which takes some time to read through and workshop, which is my favorite chunk of the class, tons of fun. However, with school, my schedule got slightly tricky now that the fall semester is in session and chugging away, so I wasn't able to finish different seasons in its entirety in time for this week's deadline, so I decided to experiment a bit. So this week, we're going to dive in with the two stories I did finish, which are the first two in this collection. The first, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, and the second, Apt Pupil. Both of these novellas have films attached to them, so we'll also incorporate those and discuss those a little bit. And then next week, I will have finished, fingers crossed, the final stories in the collection, The Body and Breathing Method. And I'm going to discuss Stand By Me for The Body. And then I will give you my concluding thoughts on how the collection works as a whole and my overall perception of all of the stories woven together side by 
by side, as well as potentially listing my favorite one or ones. So due to life happening, we're embracing the change and riding the wave, and I hope it's not too jarring. Although it feels so strange to not be finished with the book for all of you, it, it actually feels like I'm <laughs> like I'm cheating and dropping the ball and being a little loser kid. But I know I have your forgiveness, and I know I have your ear for both parts of this novella collection, as these collections tend to be, in my experience, so meaty and full of wonderful content to analyze. So this will be an experiment, and I'm looking forward to carrying it out, and we'll see how it goes. To reiterate, this week we'll be exclusively looking at our first two seasons of different seasons, Spring and Summer, or Per the King's Mouth, Hope Springs Eternal, and Summer of Corruption with these first two stars. So my apologies that I'm not coming to you with a completed book. That is usually how I like to roll, my friends. But we'll see how it goes and how we can make it work, and maybe it will be awesome, and I will do it more often. I'm not sure. It's a mystery, but let's get to it. So before this week, I had never read different seasons, my friends. When I researched this novel, the ratings are sky high and through the roof, which indicates that this may not be a by-the-book contender for the podcast, as we chiefly enjoy, at least for this first year, uncovering the underrated works. But this year, uh, 2020 being the um, long-burning garbage fire that it is, I've really got close to my love for the four novella collections because they make me happy, and I've wanted to read this one for years, so I think I might need to amend my own bylaws for the pod, where we read the underrated works as well as whatever Kim C. considers as following her bliss. So that might be how it goes as we move forward. But this, on the ratings chart, is a beloved novella collection, and I can tell because three out of the four stories in this collection not only have films, but have really good films attached to them. So much more on those later, but this collection is definitely one that has been connected to Hollywood stardom, and many, many readers may have used this novella collection to be their entryway into King reading, or at least appreciating him as more than just a horror writer, which is folks, one of the ultimate goals of this podcast. So, only having read these first two stories, my first sentiments when I finished the two of them were, um, where did Stephen King go and who is this literary genius who replaced him? My guys, these first two stories are nuts. They're just so well written. I'm honestly gobsmacked, as the Brits would say, over these two because Mr. King is unleashing some masterworks in these first two outputs. Rita Hayworth and Shawshank is... Well, it's so perfect, guys. It's so incredible and meaningful and beyond. I'm the best kind of speechless when I think about it. And Apt Pupil is a descent into crazy town. It is absolutely psychologically fascinating. I can't stop thinking about it. All of the weird 
dream sequences and how this narrative was woven together, uh, nutballs. Truly, what a ride for the mind. The craziest character interplay I've read in a while. So well done. So I can't wait to unpack these two with you, but first, I'd like to start with this brilliant quote in the opening pages of the collection. King says, it is the tale, not he who tells it. And I had to chew on that one a little bit, guys. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm one page in and I'm already getting slayed by King's brilliance. So, uh, I really enjoyed that. It is the tale, not he who tells it. So before we dive in, I wanted to share this one quote with you from the author's afterword in the back of the collection. I totally cheated and went exploring before I was finished, as I'm sure we've all done, but it was totally harmless as there wasn't any spoilers. But on page 522, King gives some insight on some of the creation of these gems. He says, each one of these longish stories was written immediately after completing a novel. It's as if I've always finished the big job with just enough gas left in the tank to blow off one good-sized novella. The Body, the oldest story here, was written directly after Salem's Lot. Apt Pupil was written in a two-week period following the completion of The Shining, and following Apt Pupil, I wrote nothing for three months. I was pooped. Rita Hayworth and The Shawshank Redemption was written after finishing The Dead Zone, and The Breathing Method, the most recently written of these stories, immediately following Firestarter. Something else about them which I just realized, each one was written in a different house, three of those in Maine and one in Boulder, Colorado. So I really enjoyed thinking on these stories in conjunction to what King said on having just completed a novel and then there must have been this mystery afterglow, this ethereal pool of something special lingering around up there and he tapped into it and we have this collection. So we will find out soon what I think of the collection as a whole at the end of part two next week, but I'm excited guys just based on these two stories, I feel like I'm really reading King with master hat on. There is something uniquely awesome and powerful about the writing in this collection. So it could be early infatuation and it may fizzle as I make my way through the last two stories. I don't know, but right now I'm feeling the passion. So we'll see if the flame continues, but without further delay, let us head into the dark shadow within the town of Castle Rock, the cold gray stone walls of Shawshank Prison. Let's get busy living or get busy dying with our first story of this novella collection, The Rosebud of Hope Springs Eternal, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption.
Hello guys and gals, and welcome to the story that caused Kim C to burst into sobs. No foolin'. <laughs> My friends, this incredible novella, where do I begin to sing its praises? Where do I sign up to worship this thing every day of my life? Tell me who has this sign-up sheet because I'm there. Oh, it's, oh my gosh. Okay, so good. So to quote Maria Von Trapp, let's start from the very beginning. A very good place to start. So I have seen the Shawshank Redemption film several times. I think I caught it on TV several years ago. I believe I always saw chunks of it over the years because everyone you ever talked to raved about it. And then... I want to say about a decade or more during, during my Kim C script reading with movies after school days, I saw the whole thing in its entirety and I too, like everyone, felt it was the most powerful film ever. It just leaves your heart all punched up and tears down your face and that ending is just so emotional. So I was a fan of the movie already and I was hesitant going into this novella because I know it's such a heavy subject. I knew from the movie how sad it was going to be, how hard to stomach, but this is the year of pain for a lot of us due to the pandemic and uh, civil unrest the economy, rampant disease and death. Um, we're in a boiling pot together, folks, so I've felt decently numbed enough to head into the Sad King stories as a form of hair of the dog, so in I went, guns blazing. And, well, well, my friends, I wasn't prepared for what exactly happened to me when I read this story. A few things. Number one, as I'm reading it, I'm so swept away by Red's narration. I am so carried by this writing that I felt like I had a synesthesia moment. Do you guys ever get those? Synesthesia, to put it simply, is when you can taste a word or see a sound. It's when a sort of neurological bridge of stimuli occur, and I don't know if mine was legit synesthesia, where you taste something, or you close your eyes and something has a texture or a scent or a color. I don't know if mine was super duper sensory, like physical touch related or anything, but as I was making my way through this narrative and reading the words of Red and these terribly sad moments and scenes of absolute barbarism and cruelty, yet the way they're expressed are just so beautiful. I envisioned in my mind like I was hauling a huge weight, like I could feel weight in my arms as if the book itself was heavily loaded down. But then when I focused on that weight, it was a block of pure gold. I was holding the heavy weight of pure gold. And that's what this story feels like to me, guys. Solid, heavy, like a giant textbook-sized chunk of pure gold. I have no idea where that vision came from, where the sensation came from. I am at a loss. But heavy gold 
is the novella Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. And at the end, perhaps it's because I've been on a rapid pace of working through these novels for the pod, and some of them are more challenging than others in terms of emotional catharsis. And speaking of emotional catharsis, I haven't had a catharsis corner in a while, which is a segment of mini episodes I do to let out some of the steam that builds up from the last novel read. So it could be, you know, the emotional catharsis, or it could just be this year of 2020 and its suckage in general, but I've been enjoying the ride and just powering through these novels for enjoyment and distraction. But the second thing that occurred with this beautiful story is in the final pages, particularly the last few moments as we, the reader, have with Red as our narrator, I broke open, guys. I started crying like I haven't cried in a while. It was the kind of cry when your shoulders start heaving forward, like a full-on body shudder and everything above torso is just at the mercy of emotion. It was a hard cry. The kind that has some sound and some drippy tears and it came on quite suddenly and I just let it happen and let it out. But yeah, it was due to this story. And I think that's a mark of something special. I really do. So there was a quote from a literary scholar we read about in school, and of course, I can't for the life of me remember his name for shame, but I'll never forget what he said. He said, good books you'll enjoy revisiting again and again like an old friend, but great books, great books change you. And I think that's wholeheartedly true. Because that's how I felt um, after I've read several novels throughout my life, but particularly after how I, it's how I felt after I read it. And I'm not totally sure why, but I just felt transformed by the power of story and by the journey of the Losers Club through their fear and trauma and unresolved pain. But not only do I feel Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption has that power to change. But, dear listeners, I think it may be one of the greatest novellas of all time. I really do. I think it's up there. I think some people read this story and you don't walk away the same. And I think that was the case for director Frank Darabont, who took this story and adapted it and distilled it. And in my opinion, I think he took this heavy brick of gold and turned it into platinum, turned it into a script, a film, something larger than life, and it changed people's lives. It made them better. And folks, the 1994 film of Shawshank Redemption is currently the number one film beating out The Godfather. It has the number one spot on the IMDb's top 250 films of all time list. You guys, it's number one. So that is something to investigate. That is something to unwrap a bit, I think. And that is the power of this story. It is masterful. It is beyond genius. It is channeling the human heart, the human spirit, the nature of hope and perseverance, the power of friendship, and the notion of peace found in the midst of suffering. 
like how biblical you want to get, folks. Uh, stories like this just really kind of validate my entire life path without getting too deep on you. I know we've kind of already gone there, but stories like these make it seem very evident why I chose a life of studying fiction and following the stories for the rest of my days. This one, this novella is checkmate, friends. Just wow, wow, wow. Reading this story has unspooled all my yarn <laughs> in the best way, and I can't wait to carve out some of my favorite parts and look at it with you. So in this segment, we're going to look at the characters of Red and Andy Dufresne. I'm going to read you some quotes to highlight some genius writing and powerful ex excerpts from the text. And then we're going to talk about the 1994 film because it's really special and culturally essential. And I'd like to talk about what the film added um, and didn't have, but why it worked. So before we get going, I want to explore some unique elements of the novella as well as have a brief summary of what the story is about just in case Gen Z is listening as they are our future and we must preach the message of this amazing story and film to them so they can carry the flame forward. Okay. In 1948, Ellis Rudding, aka Rudd, has been an inmate at Shawshank Prison for 10 years when Andy Dufresne arrives. Rudd is the guy who can get you things, but nothing gets Rudd more curious than this particularly short, very quiet, neat, former banker who always puts up a fight when he knows he's beat and asks Rudd for a rock hammer and a poster of actress Rita Hayworth. Over the years, Red goes from distant observer to Andy's good friend, and he witnesses the bright light, talent, skill, sense of freedom, and dreams Andy brings to those inside who have lost hope, as Andy himself is the only truly innocent man in Shawshank Prison. So in these 100, perhaps 101 pages of this perfect novella, according to Steve, he said he finished writing it after The Dead Zone. So The Dead Zone was published by Viking in summer of 79, so maybe in 79 or 80 he may have written it. And I think this story, at least in tone, really channels the tragic character of Johnny Smith, who is the main protagonist in The Dead Zone. And if you haven't read The Dead Zone, it's been referred to as one of, if not the best novel of 1970s King. And if you like, you can head back to my coverage on The Dead Zone a few episodes back. But it's fascinating to know that maybe the milieu of Johnny's fate may have bled into the soil of this story and the fact that they're kind of really close in proximity to one another I love that connection it really works and it actually allows me to have a bit more reverence for the dead zone which also did a number on my heart so the fact that Andy Dufresne and Johnny Smith may come from the same tilled mental soil just makes me happy but let's progress into the elements of the novella and then we'll jump to our characters and explore the wondrous Andy Dufresne and Red.
Today I have two elements within Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption that shouted the loudest out to me and I would like to share those with you. And then we'll move on to characters and then we will talk about the 1994 film. But the first element that I 100% adore with all of my heart is voice. I actually have it written here, voice, 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 voice in all caps. My friends, the narrative voice of this story is off the chain, as they say, and folks, it really is. So Red is our narrator and his voice and word choice. Firstly, King is writing this in the late 70s, maybe at the turn of 1980, but yet this story feels like he went back in time and tape recorded some guy living in the 1940s true to life story. It reads as this very real, lived-in, dusty, weathered voice, and it's either Steve King is a legit time traveler, which a few fans have argued thus, or he's just cooking with some really magical fruit for the character of Red. But what I also love about this narrative voice is how well it captures not only being a man of Red's age and culture, but circumstance and the time he's in. It feels old world, it sounds like memory and simplicity, and I'm just astonished with the power of this. So I have a quote or two that we're going to explore in this chunk to kind of show you what I'm talking about. So this upcoming quote is on page 37, and just listen to the prose and this lyrical language, and listen to how what I'm saying sounds completely like a guy from this time period. So we're starting at the bottom of page 37. That's how, on the second to last day of the job, the convict crew that tarred the plate factory roof in 1950 ended up sitting in a row at 10 o'clock on a spring morning, drinking black label beer supplied by the hardest screw that ever walked to turn at Shawshank State Prison. That beer was piss warm, but it was still the best I ever had in my life. We sat and drank it and felt the sun. Hang on, page turn. The page is stuck. Ah! Felt the sun on our shoulders and not even the expression of half amusement, half contempt on Hadley's face as if he were watching apes drink beer instead of men could spoil it. It lasted 20 minutes, that beer break, and for those 20 minutes, we felt like free men. We could have been drinking beer or tarring the roof of one of our own houses. Only Andy didn't drink. I already told you about his drinking habits. He sat hunkered down in the shade, hands dangling between his knees, watching us and smiling a little. It's amazing how many men remember him that way, and amazing how many men were on that work crew when Andy Dufresne faced down Byron Hadley. I thought there were nine or ten of us, but by 1955 there must have been two hundred of us, maybe more, if you believed what you heard. So yeah, if you ask me to give you a flat-out answer to the question of whether I'm trying to tell you about a man or a legend that got made up around the man, like a pearl around a little piece of grit, I'd have to say that the answer lies somewhere in between. 
All I know for sure is that Andy Dufresne wasn't much like me or anyone else I ever knew since I came inside. He brought in $500 jammed up his back porch, but somehow that gray meat son of a bitch managed to bring in something else as well. A sense of his own worth, maybe. Or a feeling that he would be the winner in the end. Or maybe it was only a sense of freedom, even inside these goddamn gray walls. It was a kind of inner light he carried around with him. I only knew him to lose that light once, and that is also part of this story. Oh my gosh, my soul weeps. So beautiful, guys. So that's what I mean by voice. The narration of this thing absolutely slays me. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more in detail um, when we talk about the character of Red, but the additional uh, unique element I would like to add to this conversation is the notion of biblical Joseph. So upon reading Shawshank, I think we have a really big source of biblical illusion here. And I think King toys with biblical illusion and sacred story and myth within his characters quite a bit. If you guys jump back to my coverage of The Institute, which came out last year, um, one of the big biblical illusions that's used is from the story of Samson. And there is another prison story, I do believe it is Shawshank, of a wonderful wonderful, wonderful, unforgettable character named Mr. John Coffey. And his initials should lead you to the biblical character he is channeling in the Green Mile. But I wanted to bring up Joseph to you because it really works with this story. Trust me, I'm going to tie it together. And I bring it up because it's my favorite, favorite, favorite story in the entire Bible. This one, out of all the prophets, all the powerful females, the miracles, the guy that got eaten by the whale, all very enjoyable and favorites. Uh, they receive high marks, but this one is the top spot, guys. This one is my all-time number one, the golden star, and that's the story of Joseph. So my quick abridged version involving the coat of many colors, as most of us know, but if you don't know the story of Joseph, my guys, it's incredible and it's legit so powerful. So I'm going to take you through it really quick, just a couple bullet points, and you'll soon see why I compare it to Shawshank. So Joseph is one of 12 brothers who down the road come to be the 12 tribes of Israel. That's another big, big thing there. But Joseph was the youngest and the favorite because his father, Jacob, was absolutely in love with Rachel, who is Joseph's mom. So Rachel was his true love, was um, Jacob's true love, even though he had three other wives. Rachel was his jam and Rachel only had one son and that was Joseph. So, well, she had another one, but that's a sad fate. So Joseph is the favorite. He's Jacob's favorite and there's no other way to describe it, but Joseph, unfortunately, was a cocky little shit and he used to annoy his brothers all all the time and show off the special coat his father gave him. Nobody else got a coat. And uh, little Joe had prophetic dreams quite a bit and he would brag about them and 
just wouldn't shut up, so his brothers couldn't stand him anymore and decided to kill him. But last minute, they said, nah, let's make some money off of his super annoying ass. So they pretended that he died uh, a tragic wild animal attack. They took his coat, dragged it through some goat's blood, threw, threw Joseph in a pit while some slavers took him and uh, set off for Egypt. And poor Joseph you know, was stolen away from his life and all he knew. So he was sold to a wealthy Egyptian guy named Potiphar, and Joseph, being a cocky little punk, really could talk the talk, and he was really smart and really capable, and Potiphar took notice, and it wasn't long before Joseph was running Potiphar's entire household. Bank books, merchandise, Joseph was running the place, guys. So Potiphar's wife took notice, and uh, Joseph was young and foxy, and Potiphar's wife wanted to sleep with Joseph. Joseph declined numerous times until this terrible woman cried rape, rape which never happened, but Potiphar was so hurt and enraged, he made sure Joseph was thrown into prison. So Jason, J Jason, who is Jason? <laughs> Joseph would remain in prison for 13 years. And this is super tragic because Joseph, like Andy, was a fully innocent man behind bars. So thankfully, on the bright side of the story, he helped many people in prison. He made their lives better and he would tell people that, you know, got sprung from jail. He would say, please help me. Please get, you know, me out. Mention my name to Pharaoh. Plead my case. And then these people got out of prison and they never returned to help Joseph and they totally forgot about him. So once more, Joseph is really smart and uh, he has these prophetic dreams and just like he did when he was young and coincidentally word got around that there's this guy in prison who has these dreams that totally come to pass and he interprets them and they're he's really good at it so the Pharaoh uh, has some dreams of his own and asks for some help interpreting them and uh, they're like, hey, we know a guy. So they get Joseph and they go into the prison to get him and coincidentally, uh, Joseph was running the prison because that's what Joseph does. His talent and his favor always got him promoted so he was the guy in charge. So Pharaoh pulls Joseph out of prison and asks him to interpret his crazy dream he had because no one can do it. Pharaoh dreamed of seven healthy cows coming out of the Nile and seven, seven creepy heroin skinny cows coming after those fat healthy cows, but the creepy cows ate the fat healthy ones. So Joseph interpreted that seven years of bounty and plenty would occur in the land of Egypt, followed by seven years of famine, and it was going to wreck the place. So Pharaoh freaked out, but Joseph said, well, what you could do is just start storing up all the grain, and that way when the famine hits, you won't die, and, Pharaoh, and you know, all of Egypt will be okay. And then Pharaoh is super pumped and he's like, you're going to help me do it. From this moment, you're in charge, buddy, of everything. The whole land, you're right under me. So Pharaoh took off his signet ring, put it on Joseph, cloaked him in linen, and Joseph, in a snap, became the prince of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. So this guy, sold into slavery, left for dead, imprisoned, 
is now prince of the entire developed world at that point. So my favorite thing is that shortly after Joseph gets married to a foxy Egyptian lady, they have two sons and Joseph names his firstborn Manasseh. And he said, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble. And then the second son he names Ephraim or Ephraim and says, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So after that, there's a clunky but good reunion with Joe and his brothers, but the moral of the story is that maybe Joseph wasn't being buried but was being planted. Um, maybe all the pain and suffering was for a greater purpose and that whatever the world may have intended for evil, God used for good. So if you guys want more of Joseph, head to Genesis 37 to about... 50, I think. Um, I left a few things out. There's some good stuff about the big prophecy I left out for you guys to explore if you wish. But reading the story of Joseph and having that in mind, I see Andy Dufresne quite a bit, particularly with the fact that both were imprisoned as completely innocent men and that both were granted immense favor in their situations. Andy was able to have a single room cell in Shawshank for many years, and that was a great privilege, as well as being in charge of Warden Norton's taxes, money, highly classified information, as well as leader of the Shawshank Library and the funding it would receive every year from larger and larger donors. And Andy also had a lot of friends and people liked him. They gravitated to him, people asked him for help, and without revealing the ending of the novella, it's a happy one for Andy, much like it was a happy one for Joseph. So those are my two favorites I wanted to mention for the novella when it comes to observations on what's unique operating. But without further ado, let's get into characters. So the two I'm going to explore, because they're really the stars of our show, is Red and Andy. So we're going to start with Red. Um, I believe Red's full name is Ellis Boyd or Boyd Ellis. Um, I think it could be Boyd Ellis Redding, actually. Um, but Red is a nickname, perhaps given for his red hair, as Red in the novel is actually a very uh, pasty Irishman with red hair. Um, but Red is pretty much our star in terms of being the, the main... He is the Nick Carraway to our Gatsby. If you guys remember from The Great Gatsby, we have Nick Carraway explaining this legendary figure of Jay Gatsby, and he's the one telling our story. So I really liken um, Red to being very much like that. He's narrating everything that has happened uh, in the past, describing Andy's life in the Gatsby kind of sense, where he's a part of it in the background, watching, observing, and marveling. So Red came to Shawshank in 1938 when he was 20 years old after being convicted of murdering his wife while messing with, by messing with her brakes, the brakes on her car, unfortunately. The wife had picked up a neighbor and her young child um, when this terrible brake 
screwage happened, so all three died in a terrible car accident and Red got life in prison. So Red quickly becomes the guy to get you things. He's the uh, the guy. He's the one you turn to. Um, so these things range mostly from outside contraband, cigarettes, ganja, alcohol, posters, specialty items, stuff that's hard to get. Red is the guy who makes it happen and takes a little off the top by providing this service. And he takes special interest in Andy because he's just never seen or been around anyone quite like Andy before. Then Andy seemed to grow this larger-than-life reputation with tales of bravery and gutsy moves that get regular prisoners really effed up, but Andy is bold but also really smart and just unlike anybody else, so Red has his eyes and ears out for Andy, and eventually, thankfully, the two become really good friends, maybe even best friends. So Red is someone who has trouble with hope and dreaming of life on the outside, that someday it will happen for him, but Andy, as well as Andy's last act at Shawshank, fill Red with possibility and remind him that hope isn't a bad thing. So at the conclusion of our novella, Red is paroled in the year 1976 after 38 years in prison. He is 58 years old. Andy Dufresne, the man, the myth, the legend. So Red tells us that Andy is short and wears gold rim spectacles and his fingernails are short and clipped and he's just tidy and professional. And Red also says Andy is the kind of guy you can tell always wore a tie. And I liked that. Um, what we find out is that Andy is very reserved. He's quiet and pensive and a man of his own thoughts. He's small in stature. He's reserved and he has this very sort of stoic attitude. It was probably shock at the time or just disbelief, but I believe that stoic reserved attitude most definitely caused the guilty verdict uh, when you read the story. The judge and jury can't really find remorse on Andy or from Andy because I think he's a person perhaps on the Myers-Briggs scales. He, he reminds me, if you guys are into that sort of thing, of like the INTJ, INTP range, if you guys catch my drift. But he's a man that doesn't easily succumb to emotion. It's deep inside, but it's not in him or on his face or in his voice when he needs it. And I feel that's wholeheartedly why he gets the guilty verdict he does. Um, Andy was convicted of shooting his wife and her lover, a golf pro named Glenn Quentin, four shots for each of them, but what really happened was Andy got drunk, got really close to where his wife and her lover were staying, and then he went home and passed out. And, uh... He was suicidal a few weeks prior. He did purchase a gun, but he ended up throwing the gun into the river. Uh, the river was dragged, so they had the murder weapon, in quotes. But the reader is left to believe that Andy truly is someone who did not commit this crime. And we find out later with proof from another inmate story that Andy is totally innocent. So there really isn't any wondering in the novella. You you definitely feel in your bones as the reader, this guy's innocent. 
So Andy is 30 years old when he comes to Shawshank, and he and Red don't really talk for a whole year until 1949 when Andy asks Red, who is quite the helpful guy in Shawshank, to get him a poster of Rita Hayworth. So in the novella, Andy's education and business talents grant him a lot of favor, and he quickly becomes a source of tax help, business advice, money strategy, and unfortunately, this is the most heartbreaking part of the novella for me, but in the early years of his time at Shawshank, Andy is victim to a lot of sexual violence, rape, abuse, and it's really hard to stomach because the reader knows that Andy does not deserve to be there. So it's particularly difficult, but Andy really demonstrates what a strong spirit he has because he always fights back. He always fights them off. Even though he loses, he always fights. He's persistent and smart and incredibly tenacious and very patient, and we see Andy's patience with getting funding for the prison library. It's an incredibly slow process of writing grants, requesting funding, donations, but it pays off, and the Shawshank Library becomes, after a number of years, one of the best prison libraries in New England. So Andy is also a fan of geology and polishes rocks and he makes really beautiful pieces out of them and has this methodical persistence that leads to the most incredible climax, which most of us know if you've seen the film, but if you're a younger listener, if you're my Gen Z who has never seen the movie or read the novella, I'm going to dance around it just in case. And this is in the hope that you, younger listener, you hope for the new generation will A, read the novella, and B, immediately after, watch the 1994 film, and C, sit quietly in a silent room and contemplate the beauty of life and your own beating heart because that's what it will make you do, I promise. So I digress. Um, Andy Dufresne is someone who becomes more emotional, more outspoken, and more fearless as his time in prison drags on. But what's amazing is Andy is someone who is himself, and he kind of boldly is himself, and he lets the world move around him, which is really inspiring. When I was thinking about it, the vision I got in mind is that Andy's like a tree that just grows taller, but he doesn't change to fit the environment. The environment changes to fit him, and it's quite a feat to read. Andy also never loses hope, never stops remembering the joys of free man life, and his dreams are shared with Red, and Red tells him that hope is dangerous and you shouldn't hang on to it, but Andy sort of corrects him on that and says, no, it's the only thing. It's the most powerful thing. And then one other thing I want to mention is kind of what was mildly said in the quote I read is that um, Andy quit drinking because up until his wife's murder, he had been drunk, drunk for weeks when he found out she was having an affair. and. Uh, that their marriage was over, but after coming to Shawshank, he decided to not drink anymore. So he had opportunities to, but he doesn't want to go back there, almost as if what's back there 
doesn't serve him anymore. Even though he has all the sorrows in the world to drown in alcohol, and yet he doesn't, and it's fascinating. But Andy is someone who we hear of from Red, so he's kind of in this golden light for the reader, and he's even in more of a golden light when we get to the film, which we are going to talk about now. So the 1994 film entitled The Shawshank Redemption was, as they would say on paper, a total flop at the box office, guys. It was released in October of 94 and not a lot of people saw it in the theaters. I believe it was only released on 33 screens, which is pretty much nothing. Um, they had a modest budget of about 25 million and this was a sleepier release. It didn't make money in the theaters. But in 1995, a wonderful thing happened and Shawshank Redemption was the number one video rental that year. And it became this complete word of mouth phenomenon in which this film has been shared and talked about and praised and studied and now it's currently IMDb's number one film of all time. All time, guys! So before we look at what the film sort of changed or added that improved the story, I just can't sing the praises of Frank Darabont more. I think he's a little bit of a genius and he is or has accomplished what I think Mike Flanagan is on his way to accomplishing, which is really, really getting King's work and bringing it to life in a way that pleases King's readers and fans and just making, just making gold, spinning the material into gold. It's already gold, but he's just making it more accessible gold. But this was Frank Darabont's I believe it may have been his, it, it was his adapted screenplay. I don't know if it was his first screenplay, but it was his directorial debut. So this is, you know, quite an endeavor. And he wrote the script. There was a bit of a five-year gap, I believe, before anything happened. And then, you know, this film was released. It didn't make any money, much like some of the beloved classics. Citizen Kane didn't make any money. Nobody saw that at the box office. Nobody saw It's a Wonderful Life. There's a lot of films that are absolute treasures in the anthology of cinema, and uh, yeah, nobody gave a crap when they came to the box office. So, um, I think Shawshank is one of those sleeper hits that is a worldwide phenomenon. But uh, Frank Darabont also directed The Green Mile that came out in 1999, which... I hate to say this sentence, I enjoyed my time at Shawshank, because I didn't, but I enjoyed the literary power of Shawshank Prison, and I believe Green Mile takes place there yet again. And uh, I think uh, I'm numb enough to have some more hair of the dog, so perhaps Green Mile will happen this year, and we could talk about the novel and the film. And then 2007's The Mist is also Frank Darabont, which I did not see yet, so uh, no spoilers. For me, I still need to read and watch watch 
and maybe that'll be my Halloween book and movie coming up. We shall see. Uh, but yeah, I'm pretty smitten kitten for Mr. Darabont and uh, this he's truly uh, created a legendary film here. So let's look at what the film changed or enhanced for the better. So number one, uh, the quote I read for you on page 37 and 38 in the American hardcover said that the beer was piss warm, but in the movie, the beer was cold. And so I love that, guys. So the roofing scene is probably one of the best scenes in the novella, aside from the end, but the roofing scene is pretty climactic as Andy is real gutsy, real ballsy, and he takes a huge chance and approaches Byron Hadley, who is the meanest guard at Shawshank. Like, this guy is straight up evil. And he tells him about a tax loophole he can work out for some inheritance he's getting so he can keep all of it and not get taxed so heavily. So Hadley almost throws him off the roof, but Andy says he'll help him if he and his co-workers, he calls them, can have three beers per man because it's springtime and work feels less like work with a bottle of suds. So he just wants some beer for everybody. So in the, nov in the novella, Red tells, as you guys heard, that the beer was piss warm. But they didn't care, they loved it, and they enjoyed it. But I love that in the actual film, Hadley brought up ice buckets. And so the guys are drinking ice cold beer, and that made my heart so happy. It was so nice. And um, I think it was really awesome when one of the characters, oh, I'm forgetting his name, it starts with an, with an H. He walks over to Andy, who's sitting in the shade, and he says, would you like a cold one, Andy? And I, like, get super welled up just thinking about it because it was just, you know, at that moment, Andy earned everybody's respect and admiration and kind of attained that legend status, and he got a bunch of friends. And um, Andy declines because he doesn't drink anymore, and... Uh, just declines his beer but smiles and sits in the shade and he's just content that everyone is enjoying it. And I know it's a small thing, it's such a small thing, but it's such a big thing, guys. The fact that they had ice cold beer versus piss warm beer is huge. And I really, it's, it's weird, but I'm so glad that there was ice in the movie. So the second thing that the movie did that just melted my heart is the character of Brooks Hatlin. So the character of Brooks is really expanded in the film and it's portrayed by this lovely actor named James, names, <laughs> why can't I say words, named James Whitmore. And uh, Brooks has been in Shawshank a long time, bless him, he arrived in the 20s, convicted of murdering his wife and daughter, so the novella says, and he was paroled in 1952. And we have this segue in the film where you see this poor man try to make it on the outside world when all he's known is Shawshank. And uh, he was the former librarian until uh, Andy took his job when he was paroled, but it's really done quite well. It's really heartbreaking and in the novella we really don't know much about Brooks other than his job at the library and he feeds a stray bird named Jake 
And he kind of fades out of the narrative when they say that Brooks passed away in 1953, but in the film we really get to see what happens to Brooks and have this experience with him of what it's like to be an institutionalized man who's released and what that might be like. It was beautiful, it's just so well done, and I'm so glad that the film explored that more. The third thing is the record scene doesn't happen, but I kind of like that it's featured in the film. So in the movie, Andy gets some vinyl donated to the library and he just decides to have this larger-than-life moment where he locks up one of the guards in the bathroom and plays the record for the entire prison. He turns on the PA system on all the buttons so the entire prison can hear what sounds like a ballad from an Italian opera over the loudspeaker. And so everybody just kind of stops in their tracks and listens to this beautiful song. And unfortunately, you know, they're banging on the door, demanding that he open it. He's sent to solitary confinement for a month as punishment. He just doesn't care, and he openly defies the commands and turns it up louder, and he just decides he's going to bring joy and culture into the prison. He wants to feel alive. And it's a really cinematic, awesome moment, but it never happened in the story, but I love it in the movie. Number four, Andy's honesty about his wife. So in the novella, we don't really hear Andy talk about his wife or their marriage too, too much. I might be wrong on that. My memory might be fading, but Tim Robbins in the film does a wonderful job of really allowing Andy's heart to come to the surface a little bit. He refers to his wife with love and always says how beautiful she was and that he didn't know how to show his love and Red tells him you may have been a bad husband but you didn't kill her that's not your fault but Andy feels an immense amount of guilt about what happened to her and that his colder and more puzzling exterior demeanor is the reason why she found someone else and got messed up in the situation so I, I kind of love this reverential remorse and longing and sadness and regret that Andy has for his wife and that's explored in the film a little bit and I think it's the better for it. Number five, Tommy Williams was transferred, not murdered. Pretty sure, so we think. So Tommy Williams is the young, sort of cocky newbie guy who comes to Shawshank and reveals, after a little bit of time working with Andy, that he knew the real guy who killed Andy's wife. He met him, he was a cellmate of his, and uh, he admitted to killing Andy's wife and the golf pro and that some innocent banker got pinned for it. So Norton, being a corrupt and vile charlatan warden that he is, moves him away from the prison and it sounds like it might have been a bribe. I'm not exactly remembering it in 100% clarity, but um, he moves him out. He transfers him to a different prison, and so Andy can't get a new trial. Um, it, it was most likely a bribe, uh, and he did this because uh, Ward Norton is the worst, and he wants Andy to suffer forever and do his bidding and keep his secrets. But in the movie, Tommy is taken out in a really yikes kind of way that makes you absolutely despise Norton as and all his cronies. They're just rotten, all of them. So that was something that was slightly 
slightly amped up for dramatic effect and I think it works. I actually think it makes Warden Norton's hold on Andy more sinister and more evil and it really makes him um, a deeper, more intense villain that I don't know if the novella the novella has some great dialogue scenes with Norton and Andy, but this is like straight up evil. And so I kind of really like that we get Norton shining as a terrible bad guy he is. So number six is the ending. So the final moments, I'm gonna tiptoe around this guys, no spoilers, I promise no spoilers. I'm gonna do my absolute best. Even though when I was thinking about how I'm phrasing this, it's kind of revealing, but um, actually it's not. So uh, no spoilers, but in the final moments of the novella, we just have so much beauty and so much hope and it's Red dreaming of a future he never could have dreamed of before without his friend Andy and you know he's paroled he's a free man now but the final moments of the film guys really just blow my doors in and make me cry so much. So all I'm gonna say is I hope that the majority of us have seen the film um, but there is a moment where we see blue blue water like the bluest freaking water i could it's bluer than blue it's stunning and i believe it was filmed in saint croix but it's stunningly gorgeous and it's a wonderful moment and i'm not going to go into detail in case gen z hasn't seen it and i'm betting you haven't you young precious daisies and i would like you to experience it for yourself and then share this message with the world but the final moments of the film are pretty spectacular it's full of color you can almost feel feel the wind from that scene and feel it off the water and it's pure magic. It is very, very, very moving. So to recap what I feel the film does better than the actual novella or what I'm happy it expanded upon, number one, the beer was cold. Damn it, it was cold. Number two, Brooks Hatlin. What a wonderful character. Number three, the record scene doesn't happen, but I love it in the movie. Number four, Andy's honesty about his wife. Number five, Tommy Williams was transferred, not murdered and number six the ending with that blue blue water so to uh to conclude the movie is cast so well guys it's so morgan freeman is iconic he's an absolute icon at this point and his voice and narrative power just sort of slow roast anyone's heart and I learned in watching a few behind the scenes that when Morgan was offered the role of Red, he handpicked Tim Robbins' name out of a row of actors and chose him to be Andy. So that may have had something to do with the casting that he was handpicked. Apparently, Charlie Sheen was like really gunning for this role. He was trying to rub elbows with everybody at the studio. Like he really wanted the role of Andy. Um, they also almost most gave the role of Red to Tom Hanks, um, but Morgan Freeman is just the perfect choice. 
and uh, Tim Robbins is apparently six foot five and Andy's supposed to be short but it totally works and uh, Red is supposed to be white and Irish but with Morgan it just works so well it's just casting perfection if you if you ask me so before we say goodbye to Shawshank, I'd like to share one more quote with you. This is on page 94 of the novella, and let's see if I can make it through without getting misty. Okay. It stirred up more memories than I ever would have believed. Writing about yourself seems to be a lot like sticking a branch into clear river water and rolling up the muddy bottom. Well, you weren't writing about yourself, I hear someone in the peanut gallery saying. You were writing about Andy Dufresne. You're nothing but a minor character in your own story. But you know, that's just not so. It's all about me. Every damned word of it. Andy was the part of me they could never lock up. The part of me that will rejoice when the gates finally open for me and I walk out in my cheap suit with my $20 of mad money in my pocket. That part of me will rejoice no matter how old and broken and scared the rest of me is. I guess it's just that Andy had more of that part than me and used it better. There are others here like me, others who remember Andy. We're glad he's gone, but a little sad too. Some birds aren't meant to be caged, that's all. Their feathers are too bright, their songs too sweet and wild, so you let them go, or when you open the cage to feed them, they somehow fly out past you, and the part of you that knows it was wrong to imprison them in the first place rejoices, but still, the place where you live is that much more drab and empty for their departure. That's the story, and I'm glad I told it, even if it is a bit inconclusive, and even though some of the memories the pencil prodded up, like that branch poking up the river mud, made me feel a little sad and even older than I am. Thank you for listening. Oh, I kept it together, just barely. <laughs> but um, overall, my friends, my thoughts about the novella and the film are just wrapped up together in a Christmas bow. Um, I think Steve may have a contender for one of the greatest novellas of all time, guys. I truly do. It could be the greatest of all time because it has the power to change you. It has the power to remind you that life is precious and do not give up. You can overcome it. You can really overcome anything. The power of the human spirit, the power of life, and that hope is everything. And those are the messages found within this story and these characters, and it's just so powerful and emotional, and it just unites us, I think. So... Overall, please read this novella if you need to cry it out, and then watch the movie if you have one or two tears left in the tank you would like expelled, and I'm sure you'll feel a lot better. But, whew. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're going to leave the hope of spring and proceed into the summer of corruption and we're gonna go 180 degrees in the opposite direction 
where we proceed into the darker depths of a very icky, very unsettling, psychologically fascinating story that explores the relationship between an aging Nazi and an impressionable teen boy. Follow me, dear friends, and let's analyze apt pupil. Hey guys, and welcome to the Summer of Corruption with our second novella in different seasons, Apt Pupil. My, 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 uh, Apt Pupil is a nasty little story, my friends. We have a polar opposite, a complete shift and detour off the path tone-wise with this one. We stray quite far from the hope and light of Shawshank Redemption and descend into this mental minefield chess game between two very smart, very cunning, very despicable characters. I say the word nasty for a few reasons. One reason is that the tone, again, is really icky and depraved, and we've got characters who are rotten, and we kind of watch them rot further, if you can, if you can imagine that. Um, there is a ton of graphic violence in this one, guys. Very unsettling subjects. And we have animal violence, which is really unpleasant and hard to stomach, so heads up for all you fur parents out there because not fun. And unfortunately, we do see that quite a bit in King's work. Not so much in these this last decade, I feel, but in the past it pops up, which is terrible. I understand why he does it, though, because it creates such a visceral reaction from the reader, but uh, heads up to fur parents out there, not my favorite. Uh, but this story really leaves the reader, at least for me, feeling like I was caked in pond scum. <laughs> um, Truly, during the narrative, I was very eager to be rid of it. I was ready to be done and very, very much looking forward to showering it off me. I really can't reiterate enough, guys, how glad I was to finish the story. And, you know, thinking about that in, you know, with a fine-tooth comb, I don't know if that's a good thing, a bad thing, or just a thing but we're going to explore it further together. But thankfully, writing-wise, within the 191 pages of this novella, there are some cool things occurring. From a storytelling perspective, I enjoy the sandbox King is playing in and how he creates a very interesting, very dynamic codependence between these two characters. One young, the other old, Kurt DeSander and Todd Bowman for the um, 
most part overall i just dislike this story guys uh i really did this doesn't happen too often and when i say dislike definitely don't take it as a death sentence because there are seldom king narratives that have nothing enjoyable about them which is the case with this story there's actually a lot of things i enjoy um but some of the dislike is subjective because this vibe this this uh, this story beat reminds me of the gross Norman Daniels from Rose Matter. I just finished up and he's taking a little bit of time to wash out of my brain and he was really distasteful and unfortunately this novella bubbles that character muck up again like a clogged sink, but I'm doing my best to remain objective and not associate that villain and completely different novel with this story because I realized that shouldn't correlate. However, regardless, um, we have some more ugly with a capital U in this story. Uh, lots of hate, racism, violence, misogyny, torture, and murder. So it's tough to stay steeped in that page after page and knowing the sinkhole you're in is only expanding and as you get closer to the tail end of the story there is a terrible realization that your characters are not going to have any redeeming arcs or redemptive acts or remorse at all so the emotional reader in me was very put off but the objective analytical reader in me was interested when I channel the objective side of my mind, I do like that we see King toying with one of two ideas. Either you could be infected by hate like a virus and it grows and mutates inside you until you just lose it, or one is quite literally born bad and some sort of catalyst sets you on the path to depravity. So I'm really actually not sure which one he is working with in this story. I might need your, your help on that one to nail down if it's one or the other or both, but it, it's definitely got me so curious and really made it worth exploring. On a psychological level, this story is quite quite fascinating. But aside from me looking at it much like a scientist would in the microscope, which I feel I'm trying to do with this one, I'm, I feel most successful and most interested in this narrative when I'm looking at it much like the blueprints of a house, which is working for the most, most part. The blueprints are, uh, you know, hold and steady. But if you would have me look at the already built house and the decorated rooms, this house be disturbing and really unappealing, and I'd like to step out of it, please and thank you. <laughs> so here is my summary for apt people. Todd Bowman is 13 years old in the summer of 1974. The Southern California only child, bright student, has a big goal when he knocks on the door of local elderly resident Arthur Danker. The old man answers, and Todd quickly reveals he knows that the man behind the cracked door is not Arthur Danker, but Kurt Dusander, a celebrated and frequently photographed Nazi officer who ran the Patton concentration camp and has been hiding all over the world since the end of the war. 
Todd propositions Kurt. He says he will keep his secret if Kurt tells him about the war, tells him all the gooshy stuff, particularly about the death and experiments. Kurt, feeling blindsided and confused, agrees, and Todd begins spending a lot of time with Kurt, learning and learning and learning. Years pass, and their strained relationship evolves. Todd's appetites and perspectives change. What used to make him sick and give him nightmares now thrills him, and soon both Kurt and Todd are caught up in a toxic dance of both loathing one another and needing one another to keep each other's secrets. So, moderately a bit longer than I feel your average synopsis or boilerplate should be, but there's there's a lot to set up for this one, I think, and uh, I, I'm, I am looking forward to talking about it uh, with you guys, while in the same breath I'm not. It's such a funny, <laughs> there's such a funny dichotomy going on right now. So I think for this story, I would like to mention what I enjoyed most about it, as well as the problem areas I had. We'll look at some questions, and then we're going to talk about the characters of both Kurt and Todd, and then we will examine the 1998 film starring Ian McKellen and Brad Renfro, directed by Brian Singer, and we'll discuss what the film did a little differently. So with this one, I think that we're going to have a delicate dance of spoilers, uh, although we might have one or two sort of big reveals in terms of there's just no way to dance around one or two of them. So tread carefully if you would like to remain completely spoiler free for this one. Hold back just a little bit because I may or may not just go there because I enjoy the analysis of this story more than I enjoy the actual story. And so by analyzing it, I'll probably have to reveal a few concrete things. So just a heads up, I'm like 85% sure I might ruin everything for you if you would like to remain spoiler free. So just a heads up. But when I look at my notes, I really only have one large area that is both a combination of what I liked and what I felt fell flat. It's kind of stemming from the same source, which is pretty cool, and the unique element I am going to present to you is called the taut piano wire of distrust. <laughs> Very dramatic. But one aspect that really engaged me was the first 100, 150 pages pages where we have a young Todd. It's more like the first hundred pages, I think. We have a young Todd who's very bold and brash, and he's saying he knows Kurt's true identity, and he's going to tell the world unless DeSander does his bidding. And this seed of blackmail is planted between them, and it really bears some toxic fruit, guys. One of the very interesting parts of this story is that both of these characters navigate around each other like two male lions. Each one seems to strive for dominance or the upper hand, and it seems to be a trade-off of who has the upper hand and who doesn't, and it's like this constant exchange. But they never ever take their eyes off one another because there is so much distrust. These guys really don't like each other and it's fascinating because they spend so much time together. But uh, we, 
we actually hear Dusander say this, and Todd realizes this later in the novel. Dusander never calls Todd by his name. He always says boy, only boy and nothing else. And Dusander frequently reminds him, you know I don't like you. How could I ever like you? So there is a total acrimony between um between these two the entire time and they don't act upon it but there's it's silently there and it gets so tight with friction and so thick with tension the the paragraphs that unravel you're just sort of like waiting for one of them to make a move so Dusander in the beginning doesn't want to talk about the past but then something opens up inside him when he realizes perhaps he could share this dark closet of horrors with someone and then not being lonely in that part of his mind is appealing then Dusander comes to find out he actually enjoys hanging out in the dark closet of the past it's very comforting. So at 13, which is when Todd first meets Dusander, up until 17 when the novella concludes, Todd is super into death and torture and acting like a little baby Jeffrey Dahmer when he knocks on Dusander's door. And while I was trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, I thought with young Todd it may have been perhaps a too curious for his own good kind of thing, but when he starts to absorb all this dark stuff from Kurt, he is initially really messed up. So the early years of this very ambitious, gutsy, ballsy uh, sort of business proposition or proposition to Dusander, um, he's not left unscathed. So Todd's grades take a huge dive. He doesn't sleep. He can't concentrate. He loses weight. He starts to cheat and lie. And then he seeks Dusander to help him cover up the bad behavior that was caused by all the traumatic, nightmarish things Kurt's been telling him about what happened in the camps. So Todd doesn't really take responsibility for himself, but blames Dusander. So this toxic bond between them is so multi-layered, guys. It's so nutballs to when you start peeling back stuff. So what I enjoy is that for the first 100 pages, 100-ish pages or so, King keeps these alternating points of view between the two of them. We hear from Kurt, we hear from Todd, and the spotlight is on them as individuals almost chapter by chapter, so they're always side by side in the reader's mental periphery. Is it periphery? Peripheral? Uh, don't know. You guys pick. <laughs> we'll say mental peripheral? We'll say that. It works really well when we learn that they both fantasize about murdering each other, both realize they want to kill the other but can't, and the suspense of who will act on the fantasy of killing one another is... It's palpable, guys, and it's really intriguing and definitely makes you read passages a little faster because you're curious as to who will make the move and how they'll do it, and I really dug that. So 
to pull out my nerd card for a second, uh, stay with me folks, I would like to compare this to Star Wars a little bit. Um, hang on, I promise I'll, I'll make it work. I'm going to have particular focus on the dark side of the Star Wars universe. So if you guys aren't familiar uh, with Star Wars, I do apologize, but I have a feeling that's probably not the case. I hope we're all into Star Wars. But concerning the Sith, who if you're not familiar, are the evil villains of George Lucas's world. The Sith usually always have an apprentice, as it is a kind of perverted upside down cross of the Jedi instruction manual. Uh, the Jedi Order always has, um, you have the master and then you have an apprentice. So with an apprentice, whoever is concerning the Sith, when they have an apprentice, whoever is their subordinate, they teach the ways of the dark side. They teach them to use the force for selfish reasons instead of pure reasons, teach them to use it for power, for control, for domination. But one thing that always happens with the Sith, hopefully you guys all know what goes down, is that Sith and their apprentices always, always, always betray each other. Typically, it's always the apprentice who kills his master because the Sith are corrupt because they're evil and they have this formalized master trainer program but once the apprentice on the dark side feels like he no longer needs to be taught he's driven by the dark side the burning lust for power for more for mostly power to take out his master um, and that's how it always goes down and we have this with the character of Darth Sidious or Emperor Palpatine who this is a direct example from one of the films in episode 3 Revenge of the Sith uh, Emperor Palpatine proclaims he's telling a uh, young Anakin Skywalker a tale of Darth Plagueis the Wise and how Darth Plagueis was immensely powerful but was killed by his apprentice. And we learn mostly through putting two and two together, it was totally Palpatine who did it, who was the former apprentice in the story he's telling. But that's just one example out of dozens where the Sith apprentice have this toxic, betraying relationship where there is no love or loyalty or respect. It's all merely a facade and a formality because both are using each other until someone snaps and extinguishes the other and it's typically the apprentice. So I couldn't help but observe that kind of vibe between Todd and Kurt Dusander. So in these first 100, 150 pages, we have this tightly woven suspense lingering between both men. Uh, they both want to be rid of each other, and you're really curious as to how it goes down. And that's what really had me interested in the story for the first half. But unfortunately, my guys, in the later third, the latter third of the novel, that tight piano wire kind of loosens a little bit where we have some additional narrators who come in really last minute. We have a guidance counselor uh, named Ed French and then we also have a former Holocaust survivor uh, named Morris and uh, they all of a sudden get the narrative spotlight and all of a sudden this really tight 
tense electrical current between Kurt and Todd dissolves. So I will talk more about that in the character section, but I think this loosening of the taut wire kind of assisted me in not enjoying the story as a whole because the last third unraveled so much that what I did like about this story, which is the tight, creepy, you know, uh, sinister circling of these two alpha males, these two vultures just looping around each other. It's really lost in the last third, but for the first two thirds, and I'll definitely explore more of this in the character section, we have some really interesting interplay between a character who was super evil, but is evil, has been hibernating, and one character who is led down a path that quickly gets out of hand for him. And it's as if Dusander is a total human Ouija board for Todd, because Todd gets in so deep. He gets addicted and then completely altered forever. More on that in the character section coming up. But the psychological codependence between these two male characters is the most fascinating to observe. So my friends, I am now going to read a somewhat long scene, but it's such a perfect example of what I mentioned previously about this really tight wire of distrust between the two of them. So this scene kind of encompasses their entire relationship and everything I was just talking about. So this scene starts on page 192 in the American hardcover. And so, Dusander said, pouring bourbon into his cup as Todd entered the kitchen, the accused returns from the dock. How said they, prisoner? He was wearing his bathrobe and a pair of hairy wool socks that climbed halfway up his shins. Socks like that, Todd thought, would be easy to slip in. He glanced at the bottle of ancient age Dusander was currently working. It was down to the last three fingers. No Ds, no Fs, no flunk cards? Todd said. I still have to change some of my grades in June, but maybe just the averages. I'll be getting all A's and B's this quarter if I keep up my work. Oh, you'll keep it up all right, Dusander said. We will see to it. He drank and then tipped more bourbon into his cup. This calls for a celebration. His speech was slightly blurred. Hardly enough to be noticeable, but Todd knew the old fuck was as drunk as he ever got. Yes, today. It would have to be today but he was cool. Celebrate pig shit, he told DeSander. I'm afraid the delivery boy hasn't arrived with the beluga and the truffles yet, DeSander said, ignoring him. Help is so unreliable these days. What about a few Ritz crackers and some Velveeta while we wait? Okay, Todd said. What the hell? DeSander stood up, one knee banged the table, making him wince, and crossed to the refrigerator. He got out the cheese, took a knife from the drawer and a plate from the cupboard, and a box of Ritz crackers from the bread box. All carefully injected with prussic acid, he told Todd as he set the cheese and crackers down on the table. He grinned, and Todd saw that he had left out his false teeth again today. Nevertheless, Todd smiled back. So quiet today, Dusander exclaimed. I would have expected you to turn handsprings all the way up the hall. He emptied the last of the bourbon into his cup, sipped, smacked his lips. I guess I'm still numb, Todd said. He bit into a cracker. 
He had stopped refusing DeSandra's food a long time ago. DeSandra thought there was a letter with one of Todd's friends. There was not, of course. He had friends, but none he trusted that much. He supposed DeSandra had guessed that long ago, but he knew DeSandra didn't quite dare put his guess to such an extreme test as murder. What shall we talk about today? DeSandra inquired, tossing off the last shot. I give you the day off from studying, how's that? Eh? Eh? When he drank, his accent became thicker. It was an accent Todd had come to hate. Now he felt okay about the accent. He felt okay about everything. He felt very cool all over. He looked at his hands, the hands which would give the push, and they looked just as they always did. They were not trembling, they were cool. I don't care, he said, anything you want. Shall I tell you about the special soap we made, our experiments with enforced homosexuality? Or perhaps you would like to hear how I escaped Berlin after I had been foolish enough to go back. That was a close one, I can tell you. He pantomimed shaving one stubbly cheek and laughed. Anything, Todd said. Really? He watched Desander examine the empty bottle and then get up with it in one hand. Desander took it to the wastebasket and dropped it in. No, none of those, I think, DeSandra said. You don't seem to be in the mood. He stood reflectively by the wastebasket for a moment and then crossed the kitchen to the cellar door. His wool socks whispered on the hilly linoleum. I think today I will instead tell you the story of an old man who was afraid. DeSandra opened the cellar door. His back was now to the table. Todd stood up quietly. He was afraid, DeSander went on, of a certain young boy who was, in a queer way, his friend. A smart boy, his mother, called this boy apt pupil, and the old man had already discovered he was an apt pupil, although perhaps not in the way his mother thought. DeSander fumbled with the old-fashioned electrical switch on the wall, trying to turn it with his bunched did I lose my place? <laughs> trying to, yeah, I got it. Trying to turn it with his bunched and clumsy fingers. Todd walked, almost glided across the linoleum, not stepping on any of the places where it squeaked or creaked. He knew this kitchen as well as his own now, maybe better. At first, the boy was not the old man's friend, DeSander said. He managed to turn the switch at last. He descended the first step with a veteran's drunk, drunk's care. At first the old man disliked the boy a great deal, then he grew to, to enjoy his company, although there was still a strong element of dislike there. He was looking at the shelf now, but still holding the railing. Todd, cool, now, now he was cold, stepped behind him and calculated the chances of one strong push dislodging DeSander's hold on the railing, he decided to wait until DeSander leaned forward. Part of the old man's enjoyment came from a feeling of equality, DeSander went on thoughtfully. You see, the boy and the old man had each other in mutual death grips. Each knew something the other wanted kept secret, and then... Ah, then it became apparent to the old man that things were changing, yes. He was losing his hold, some of it or all of it, depending on how desperate this boy might be and how clever. It occurred to this old man on one long and sleepless night that it might be well for him to acquire a new hold on the boy for his own safety. 
Now DeSondra let go of the railing and leaned out over the steep cellar stairs, but Todd remained perfectly still. The bone-deep cold was melting out of him, being replaced by a rosy flush of anger and confusion. As DeSondra grasped his fresh bottle, Todd thought viciously that the old man had the stinkiest cellar in town. Oil or no oil, it smelled as if something had died down there. So the old man got out of his bed right then. What is sleep to an old man? Very little. And he sat at his small desk, thinking about how cleverly he had enmeshed the boy in the very crimes the boy was holding over his own head. He sat thinking about how hard the boy had worked, how very hard, to bring his school marks back up, and how when they were back up, he would have no further need for the old man alive, and if the old man were dead, the boy could be free. He turned around now, holding the fresh bottle of ancient age by the neck. I heard you, you know, he said almost gently. From the moment you pushed your chair back and stood up, you are not as quiet as you imagine, boy. At least not yet. Todd said nothing. <laughs> so, uh, pardon my, uh, reading. I know, um, you know, <laughs> do my best um but hopefully that kind of indicated to all of you guys this razor wire that the reader is on while these two interact with one another and it's so 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 enjoyable so thank you for listening to that scene and let's take a mini breath for a second and join me next in our very villain centered character section where we explore todd the punk kid and kurt the Nazi. Hey, hey guys, thanks for sticking with me as we investigate the characters of Apt Pupil. And do pardon my French coming up here a little bit. Sometimes a little French is necessary. And behold, listeners, I believe the characters within Apt Pupil is just a tale of two assholes. <laughs> and I say that with the utmost academic objectivity. One is a crusty alcoholic serial killer, and the other is a little baby serial killer in training. And the two are like poisonous snakes in a pit together. They are two peas in a pod. So let's investigate our two villains, beginning with Todd Bowden. So, Todd Bowden, we meet at the age of 13. He is really smart, tremendous good grades, but he is way too mature for his age in terms of being bold as brass when he knocks on Mr. DeSander's door and hustles this guy to do his bidding with threats of fingerprints he got from his mailbox and letters to the Israeli government and Mossad agents to give him what he wants, which is info. Uncensored and unadulterated 
info on the Holocaust and what happened in the camps. But what's interesting is I think Todd's corruption started before he even met Descender. Uh, in the novella, it says he was at a friend's house and the friend's father had stacks and stacks of World War II magazines, which I didn't know were a thing, but it makes sense because they used to have tons of uh, film footage from the war before your feature at the movies would start back in the day. So. It makes a lot of sense. It's understandable that, uh, of course, there would be magazines, but uh, why they had to be so incredibly graphic with, you know, Holocaust victims and body piles and lots of horrifying real footage for the from the war, you know, is is one of those things that doesn't do Todd any favors because he was absolutely enamored with them right off the bat. And for whatever reason, I think when looking at how deep got into his obsession with violence, I think those magazines were in a way very much like pornography to the brain. I feel with Todd, his neurons were really just firing on all cylinders when Todd saw these images and I think he craved more and more from a greater source, um, which is what happens uh, with addiction, especially pornography, substance abuse, the desensitization occurs and then you need stronger and stronger stimulus. And he serendipitously, or probably via the dark hand of fate, which is how King's writing goes sometimes, that's how he found the old man on the bus and recognized a younger Dusander via the Nazi photographs in the World War II magazines. So Todd has a mom and dad who absolutely adore him, dote on him, they love him, uh, and they are so proud that he's consistently helping an elderly neighbor and being such a kind citizen and reading to him because Mr. Dusander's eyes are bad. And uh, they have a loving marriage for the most part. King does say that the father is once or twice unfaithful with the secretary, but the mom doesn't know, so all seems good on the home front. But if you really want a much better narrative about a elder citizen and a young boy reading to him, if you read If It Bleeds This Year, there is a wonderful and way more nice story featuring an old man and a young reader um, called Mr. Harrigan's Phone. And there's a sweet boy named Craig and Mr. Mr. Harrigan, who's a rich old guy down the street, and he's there. They have a really lovely friendship. So, if you need a little bit of a catharsis after this mess, I recommend Mr. Harrigan's Phone. It's a really enjoyable short story um, or novella that came out this year. That one, much more kind on the heart and encouraging, but. Um, Unlike a kind elder youth relationship or influence or bond, Kurt and Dusander have this very toxic um, teacher-student relationship in which Kurt is regurgitating all the crimes against humanity he engaged in, but they're in a more glamorous light as they're being filtered into Todd's mind. So we spend the next four years with Todd and uh, unfortunately about two-ish years into his friendship with Dusander, I believe he's 15, 16, we really see the full transformation 
or the full corruption in which Todd is hanging out in a train yard and small damaged birds aren't enough anymore to finish off when he encounters a really sorry looking transient and commits his first brutal murder in the form of a stabbing. And what's interesting is that I think Todd wanted to kill Kurt so bad, so, so bad, but he can't because he's convinced Kurt has his own blackmail against Todd that he's super duper trapped and there's no way he could kill DeSander. So as a form of release, Todd just channels the current of evil that's been growing inside him over the years, the detached sense of power over life and death and being above people and wanting to take life and uh, he he murders and unfortunately it creates a ripple effect that leads to more murders and one of my favorite sort of character reveals because even though it's deeply disturbing as we see these really heinous layers of Todd coming to light even though this one's still pretty disturbing it's very illuminating and that's his relationship with his girlfriend in quotes uh, Betty Trask and this is in the last third of the story when Todd is about 17 it should be about 1978 uh, I believe he's either 17 or 18 and with Betty Betty likes sex she does and she wants to have sex with him but by the time they start sleeping together I believe Todd has already killed maybe four to five transients at that point and he's already so altered and desensitized to brutal murder that um he's so warped by that point sex does nothing for him it actually repels him he's quite grossed out and not turned on at all unless he's fantasizing about Betty being tied up and suffering and he's verbally abusing her, then he gets aroused. He says how relieved he would be to date a frigid girl who doesn't like sex and he really wants to find one of those. And at that point, it's pretty much set in stone that Todd is a sociopath. Um, but he's completely fooled everyone, having graduated via the help of DeSander lying for him and committing fraudulent report card grade altering. Um, Todd graduates salutatorian. He's going to college. He's got lots of awards, athletic accolades, um, doting parents. He's just this bright boy shining in the sun and so um yeah it's it's such a uh wolf in sheep's clothing most definitely and at the end of the novella we're really seeing Todd spiral out of control inside on the outside all looks right as rain he's got a promising future but Todd has been become incredibly fond of his 30-30 rifle and there are a few creepy moments where he alludes to committing a mass shooting which is so uncomfortable reading that these days I can't even um, but in the final climax of the story he does shoot a character point blank in cold blood very unsettling and the last line of this novella is five hours later they took him down so I don't really know what that means, guys. It's very ambiguous. Take him down as in killed him in a standoff with police or he was arrested and he'll be put in prison for life. I have no idea. 
My personal guess is that it's life in prison to stew in his own sort of mental cesspool there, and uh, it also seemed as though he was going to be pinned for the other murders committed, the other bodies found, which I'll talk about in Kurt's section. But my guess is prison forever, but I'm not too sure. I do kind of like the ambiguity uh, that that is the end of Todd's character, but I, I don't know what my big sort of pondering is, I don't know if Todd would have went the way he did, the serial killer way, without the nudge from years in the company of old Nazi Kurt, or if murder would have found its way to him in the end without DeSander. Or, again, if maybe just the time with Dusander was the nail in the coffin. So this is the question, the biggest question I have out of the novella is, uh, I don't know, what do you guys think? What do you guys think King was maybe toying with here in terms of, you know, was was Todd just a little bad apple on the inside? Just kind of inclined to go that way? Or did the time with DeSander, uh, also the title of the sort of theme of this section of the collection is Summer of Corruption, or was it really just sort of nudging this person in that direction? So that's my big question. I actually really don't know, but uh, I enjoy this story because of the big questions it um, makes me think about. Uh, villain number two. Um, Kurt Dusander. Uh, let's see, where do we begin with uh, old Nazi face? Okay, <laughs> so in uh, 1974 is when our whole story begins, and I think Dusander is about early to mid 70s, which would have put him potentially late 30s, early 40s during the war. Um, so he hid all over South America before coming to America in the 50s, and Todd finds him in Santo Donato. Southern California, where he's apparently been since 1955, but that may be the alias of Arthur Danker, that may be his cover story, so I'm not too sure when DeSander actually got there, but uh, this guy's totally alone, no children, no wife, and he is a raging alcoholic, like a champion alcoholic, and this guy's liver must be one giant pickle, uh, and he's a super crazy chain smoker, like how this guy has lungs at all is uh, a mystery. Um, and so he's very alone when Todd comes along, and he really quite willingly goes with Todd's proposition, I think because he's mostly shocked by the realization that somebody has found him out, and borderline happily surprised that it was a boy who discovered him. That was one of the big scenes is DeSander just shaking his head and just repeating over and over again, a boy, a boy, a young boy. So. One of the creepiest scenes in the story for me, but also the most compelling, is when Todd buys him a Nazi uniform from a costume shop. And Todd draws the blinds and asks him to try it on, which he does. And there's this, it's a very creepy scene, but Todd gets super into it and he's telling him to march and right face and about face and like all of these commands and uh, DeSander's into it. And um, when it's just DeSander, 
calendar on the page, King sort of, he, he writes that DeSander starts putting on the uniform at night when he can't sleep and he falls asleep in it and it actually helps him sleep. And that's such an unsettling image of this old man in this Nazi uniform. It's, it's actually really well done. It's very compelling and creepy, but the uniform part was a bit of a turning tide for me considering the character of Dusander. At first, when Todd was constantly coming over, I kind of felt a little bit bad for Kurt. Kind of. Just a little bit. Only because I knew this old man was being exploited by this young boy and he seemed, at least at first, like it was quite painful to relive these memories. It was quite upsetting to go back to these places and the past. But please, I, I do fervently believe that uh, no Nazi deserves sympathy of any kind, uh, just a personal stance. Um, but the character was an old man. Mr. DeSander is an old man uh, being forced to do something he didn't want to do. But with the uniform on and with his kind of delight in it, my perspective changed right away when I realized this guy takes comfort in the horrors of his old life. He feels comfort in what he did, who he was in that uniform, and perhaps in a terrible way, he made misses it. And with that, it was like, okay, sympathy over. Nope, no more. <laughs> and with good reason, thankfully, because once we get to the year 1976 and Todd starts to kind of break away and spend less and less time with Dusander, Kurt and uh, this reawakened Nazi du jour uh, also takes a page out of Todd's book and lures a transient to his home promising alcohol, a bath, clean clothes, and when he gets them into the kitchen, he brutally stabs them in the throat and buries the body in his basement cellar. He does this several times, several times, probably around six times, I believe. So Dusander kind of just taps into a slumbering murder urge that may have been wanting to come out for quite a while and I believe Todd and their relationship had they'd been watering the soil for both of them truly so after he's kind of been in a pattern of murder a heart attack occurs right after he stabs a guy and he calls Todd in desperation for help and Todd comes over helps helps him cleans up the mess, and it's in this relatively calm Todd that Dusander observes that he 100% knows that Todd is now a little murderer. He can tell um, just the way Todd wasn't very shocked or freaked out by the pool of blood in the kitchen, so there's sort of this uh, very... Um, strong sense of knowing and intuition on uh, Dusander's part. But Dusander's hospitalized and coincidentally his hospital bedmate is this nice man named Morris Heisel, I believe, who we get a few chapters of his backstory and it's all fun and good, 
good king writing, but we find out uh, the reason why he is being brought into the story so late in the game is that he's actually a survivor of Dusander at the Patton concentration camp where his wife and two daughters died. So there's this kind of slow, it's actually really great writing of him sort of being pulled at by these memories and he doesn't understand why he's thinking of certain smells and sights and sounds and then it finally he has this wonderful recollection that the guy in the hospital bed next to him is the is the is Dusander who murdered his family so he, uh, Mr. Morris, summons the Israeli police and a man named Weisskopf visits Dusander near his hospital bed the next day and basically says, get ready to go to Jerusalem for trial, buddy. You are a war criminal. Don't even try to deny who you are because we got you, so don't even try. You're caught tough. Uh, just get ready. You're gonna stand trial. And then here's where the narrative loses more steam for me, guys. So, Dusander, totally vulnerable, this evil creep fest of a guy who murdered countless of people in the war and then murdered several transients in his home, gets to take the easy way out. That's all I will say. And this is such a letdown, guys. It really, really is. So for me, if I were to do a wishing well, I would have loved if either Todd took him out. I would have loved that if there could have been a death match between Todd and Dusander. Or this lovely man, Mr. Morris, a survivor of the concentration camp. I wish that he would have, you know, kind of hobbled out of his hospital bed and strangled him to death. I wish he would have killed Dusander in the hospital, um, but unfortunately Morris couldn't do that in the novella because he broke his back and he was in a full-on body cast. But I I wish he I wished he would have been utilized. He had such a cool backstory and I feel he was introduced in the last minute maybe to throw off the reader, maybe to think that he would have been the one to kill him. Maybe it was a red herring on King's part, but I think it should have been him. I mean, why introduce this guy who survived Dusander in the camps and not give him some vigilante justice there? So that would have been a twist I would have happily got on board with, not Mr. Peaceful in his hospital bed. Nope, nope. So for these two characters, we have a mysterious ending for Todd where it's uncertain if he meets death or justice. And with Dusander, we have a suicide, clean and simple, with no justice at all. So I don't feel there is even a I don't feel there was even a creepy afterlife aspect that King usually attaches with Dusander's passing, which I was looking forward to, but I felt that it wasn't there either. Uh, that one seemed pretty cozy for old Nazi face, so very unsatisfying as a character ending for sure. So uh, I definitely wish there would have been a little bit more pain and suffering on, on his part. But uh, yeah, it could just be that age-old adage that evil never dies and, uh, you know, let's just hope that whatever afterlife King sent him to is miserable. 
But at this time, ladies and gentlemen, let us explore the 1998 film. So I hope you guys checked this one out because it's real good, real good, guys. Uh, so this is directed by Brian Singer and it's starring Brad Renfro as Todd Bowden. Rest in peace, precious soul. Uh, Brad Renfro passed away in 2008 at the age of 25. So it definitely casts a bit of a pall watching it. Um, mostly because I used to have such a crush on him going up, uh, growing up. He was a young lad featured in the <laughs> girly teen beat and I think it was either bop or pop or I don't know one of these like girly mags they were pink they were marketed to teenage girls back in the mid 90s they had posters for our bedrooms I had a Brad Renfro one I did um I think about it now, those those magazines are deeply disturbing. I really hope they don't have them anymore. They probably do, but uh, he, he when I see Brad Renfro in this film, he's pretty amazing. He's quite compelling, and he has that Leo DiCaprio, River Phoenix intensity. It makes me sad. I think he, I think he could have been a contender as, as, uh, you know, uh, Brando would say, but uh, I really enjoyed this film, guys. There's a lot of straight from the novella scenes that are so strong. I think it's cast incredibly well. Uh, Sir Ian McKellen absolutely kicks ass as Kurt Dusander. He's so convincing. His German accent is on point. He channels this sort of stumbling, bumbling, yet still incredibly calculating and in control villain. And for once, I think think we have a King film that actually doesn't become more violent. Um, usually with the movies, they ramp up the violence times 10, but this one actually tones down the violence, which is so nice. And not to say that, you know, not to comment on that as coming from like a prude anti-horror kind of way, but mostly saying that they rewrote the narrative so where it wouldn't so be so blood-soaked, but rather more focused on Todd being a teen, of which I will get to in just a second, but Unfortunately, the animal violence is still present and uh, implied, which is not fun, but rather than Todd becoming a total Ted Bundy in the streets like he does in the novella with a super blood-soaked body count, we have a lot more focus on Todd as a high school student uh, just trying to maintain this perfection and his grades, and it really explores the mental toll of his relationship with Dusander. And there is only one death in the film, contrary to like the multiple deaths that each of them engage in in the, in the novella, but this death that we do have, it's the death of a transient, but Dusander initiates it. So Todd really doesn't go full sociopath in this version, and Todd, or Dusander, initiates the death, and Todd has to finish it up. Um, so Todd kind of experiences murder a little bit, but the way the film set it up, it seemed much more of a self-defense thing, which is good because uh, Todd's descent into... Psych Psycho Town is deeply unsettling, and I'm kind of glad we didn't have that. 
Um, but unfortunately, the film kept the ending largely the same, which is very sad. I was so hoping that Mr. Morris or the hospital bedmate, I think they changed his name, but the hospital bedna bedmate was not in a body cast this time. And he has this wonderful, powerful recollection that that's the guy. And I just wish he would have just strangled him to death. That would have been so cinematic and awesome and pure revenge oh man it just could oh that was that would have been the Shakespeare door I would have gone through um but uh yeah they they old DeSanders still had the last word uh and went out on his own terms so I was really sad they didn't change the ending for him but I cannot hearken enough I'm so glad the final moments with Todd weren't so blood-soaked as they are in the novel because oh my god guys the or the novella the final moments of the novella are just like oh I can't it's heavy 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 but with the film rather than showing Todd as a crazy psycho murderer they show that Todd has really learned how to play dirty when it comes to lies and manipulation. So now he isn't afraid to blackmail, extort, screw over anybody. And so he has an encounter with um, Mr. French at the end and it's, thank God, much lighter in tone because at the end of Apt Pupil, the novella, Todd is seriously disgusting. It's so far gone in terms of psychosis and general reality. I feel in those final pages of the novella, he's been full-on digested in the stomach of hell. So it was refreshing to see the film keep the spirit of the book, but also see a little bit of artistic restraint with the story with that they portrayed. And I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I recommend it. If you've read the story, this one was good. And I liked the uh the reframing of the story um we've also got lots of good close-ups on the actors faces so uh but overall really enjoyed how faithful it was to the novella it doesn't take place in 74 but 84 so i'm not really sure exactly why but uh, it stays true mostly the best part in uh, it focuses really well on DeSander and Todd's really sick relationship and they kept one of the best quotes in the novella where Todd says to DeSander please cover your ears if there are young ones around because this is an f-bomb a textual f-bomb I promise but Todd says to DeSander in a very heated angry mood he says go fuck yourself and DeSander says boy don't you see we are fucking each other <laughs> and truer words were never more accurate I think <laughs> that's exactly what they were doing for 200 pages um not literally but uh figuratively and certainly emotionally but overall uh apt pupil as a novella is a horror story of the modern variety folks there are no supernatural elements of any kind there are quite a few dream sequences and nightmares within the novella that are quite creepy and macabre and kind of 
indicate a hellish beyond stemming from the horrors of war, but this entire narrative is really grounded in reality, which made it really ugly and quite horrifying, especially as you see Todd just relishing in the murders he's committing, and Dusander as well. He's just sort of dusting off an old you know, psycho hat he used to wear and uh, plugging into it m once more like an aging battery. It's it's disturbing, folks. This is a disturbing story. I actually craved some supernatural elements just so I would have an outlet of like, oh, okay, pure evil, this makes sense, but nope. So this one is compelling in terms of the psychological fascination parts that we have discussed thus far, but deep and heavy and summer of corruption indeed so let us close the book on this one and let us say goodbye to the summer of corruption and say hello to the body so i'm super excited to head into that next one with you so please stick around as we continue our coverage for part two of different seasons which should be along next week cannot wait to explore fall from innocence and a winter's tale with you next time please feel free to say hi and write in to the show at underrated sk at gmail or reach out to us on any of the show socials i would love to get some feedback hear your thoughts thank you for reading along with me and enjoying these stories and celebrating the works of king as the master of fiction he is so a big hug from me to you please take care wherever you are and i'll talk to you soon Bye bye